Well, good morning, Arbor. My name is Jake. It is really good to be with you this morning. We are starting a new series that we're simply calling Worship. We want to talk about worship, what it is, why we do it, how we do it. You might have thought, hey, why are we doing this now in the middle of summer? In fact, we had plans to do this thing all throughout the summer. It was our summer series, and we almost deterred from doing it because we can't get together as a congregation and worship Jesus and sing praises to him because of COVID. And so we almost stopped, and then we realized, hey, you know what? Worship is really more than just singing, right? And I know it's difficult and it's hard to sing to a screen that that doesn't translate so well. But what worship is, it is lifting our eyes to where they should be. And, and our whole motive and our whole reasoning and our hope is that we would lift our eyes out of our current circumstances and focus on to him. That's our hope. That's our reasoning, to lift our eyes out of the current craziness that's going on around us and to focus on Jesus. A couple weeks ago, I spoke, and you probably noticed I had a major sunburn, or at least I had been in the sun a lot. And the reality was, I did. I did. I spent a lot of time. We went to Hood Canal as a family, and I spent a lot of time on the water fishing. I love to fish. You probably know that if you've heard me talk more than twice. I love to fish. And guess what? This time, I got to go with my kids. My kids were so excited to go fishing with me, and I was excited to go with them. And so we jump out one morning on, onto the water, and we're out there, and they're so excited. They're thrilled. They're having the time of their life. They were having so much fun that they weren't even bored a bit. They didn't fall asleep. Okay, they did fall asleep. They fell asleep in the boat, and they were sleeping on the two seats in front of me. I was driving a little aluminum boat with an outward motor, and we were trolling, and it got so exciting and so boring that they fell asleep on me. And so I found myself by myself with my two kids sleeping in front of me, managing three different poles, one behind me, one in front, one off this side, and then also managing the motor as I'm going back and forth. And I do mean back and forth, because as I was trolling, trying to catch fish, my whole thing was going like this, trying to keep things going, because I was so focused in all the stuff that was around me. And then I remembered something. I remembered something that my dad told me a long time ago about steering a boat. And when he used to let me troll and drive back when we were fishing together, and that was this, is that you got to keep your eyes on the mountain, is what he would tell me. And we grew up around Mount Rainier, literally at the base of Mount Rainier. And so when we were on a lake, the mountain was always in full view. And so shoot for the mountain. And when you're shooting for something in the distance, it helps make your weaving path straight. And if I found it did work then too. As I'm trolling, I'm staring at this mountain, I'm staring at this hill, and all of a sudden, I'm not doing this anymore, and I'm doing this. And I was able to manage the poles around me and keep the boat straight at the same time. It reminded me of Psalm 121, when it says, I lift my eyes up, up to the mountain. Where does my help come from? Well, our, fr- our help literally comes from God. And when we look to the mountain, as Psalm 3 tells us, the holy mountain where God is, we get focus. It brings a straightness to our path when we lift our eyes up on him. Worship has a tendency 
to shift our focus from what's happening here. And when we lift our eyes to Jesus, what that does is our problems are put in their proper place, their proper perspective. They naturally shrink. They naturally shrink in contrast to Jesus because Jesus is bigger than our problems. Jesus is bigger than our circumstances. Jesus is greater than whatever we are wrestling with at this time. And that's why I want to spend this summer worshiping, worshiping the one who has the whole world in his hands, and that includes us. A.W. Tozer, he's a pastor and a, and a theologian, he said this about worship. He said, worship is the missing jewel to the evangelical church. And I think that's true. We don't put a lot of focus on worship. Another pastor said this. He says, we have become a generation of people who worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. I'm going to say that again because that is some truth right there. We worship our, wor our work, and we do that. We worship and work so hard at our occupation and our job and our career, and we even work at our play, right? We do. Got to make sure we get our vacations in. We have the proper entertainment, and yet we just play at our worship. We kind of do it just a little bit. And so that's why I want to start a series today about worship. And I'd like to start in Psalm 95 because it's an invitation. It is an invitation to worship. Here's what the psalmist said, Psalm 95. He said, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us sing to him psalms of praise, for the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depth of the earth and the mightiest mountains. Love that. The sea belongs to him, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Now the next two verses um, are, are verses out of, straight out of Psalm 95, but they're also a song, a hymn that was put together in my childhood. And every time I read Psalm 95, I cannot help but have the melody in my head. And I, I really cannot help but sing it. And so I'm going to sing the last two verses of Psalm 95. Here's what it says. Come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. For He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture. And the sheep of His hand. Just the sheep of his hand. That's the Psalm 95. We are the sheep in his hands, the good shepherd. And it's an invitation to worship the good shepherd. And so what I want to do is I want to look at three things out of this here, this psalm that we can pull from. I want to look at the meaning of worship I want to look at the motive 
for worship, and I want to look at the modes of worship. Let me say that again. The meaning, what it is, what worship is. The motive, why do we worship in the first place? And then I want to lastly spend a little time talking about the modes of worship. How should this be accomplished? And so let's start with the meaning. What is it? What is worship? In verse 6 of Psalm 95, we find the only use of the actual word worship. It says, come let us worship and bow down. It is an invitation. And friends, I think it is critical to define exactly what worship is because the term, unfortunately, through time has been confused and I would even say uh, it's been corrupted. A lot of people, a lot of people think of worship as an event or an activity, right? We come to a Sunday worship service. Or if you come to a service, that's what we call the whole thing, right? Or, or at least a section of it is worship. The, the singing portion is worship, right? I think we all can say this, we could stack hands on this, is that one can come and sit in a worship service and have very little to do, if not nothing to do, with authentic, true worship. It is very possible to come and sit among a congregation, put our minds in neutral when the music is playing, and not even engage heavenward. And so, worship is not just an event. It's not just an activity. It is far more. Worship is also not an emotion. It is not a feeling that we conjure up. Yes, I will admit this, that there are emotions that, sh that are in the midst of worship because we are to put our whole selves into worship. That is mind, that is emotions, that is everything. But hear me say this, it's not an emotional experience. We're not shooting for an emotional experience. That's not the goal. And so worship is not an emotion. And I said it a little bit before, but worship is also not just singing. To say that worship is only about singing, that that's the only thing it's about, is like saying that Thanksgiving is only about turkey. And that's it. But uh, friends, if you, Thanksgiving for me, it, I love the mashed potatoes and the butter and the gravy and the green bean casserole that my wife makes and the stuffing and there's family and there's football. There's so much involved in Thanksgiving. It's not just about the turkey and it's the same thing when it comes to worship. It's not just about singing. And so with all that said, what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you what I consider to be a biblical definition of worship. And I got to tell you this, it's, it's not as easy as you would think it would be to come up with something like this. It's as deep and as vast and as grand as worship is, it's like asking a, like a young couple who's in love to, to try to describe how they feel about each other or what's going on between them. It is very tough to do. But basic bottom line technical statement here is that worship means to declare worth. That's what it means, to declare worth, to make a statement of value about something or someone else. Worship, literally speaking, means to declare worth. It comes from the old English word worthless, worthless, which was shortened a little while ago to worth-ship, worth-ship, and now it has been shortened even more to worth. Worship, worship, 
to declare value to, or worth. And let me unpack this a little bit. Because what worship really is when we declare worth is it's a response. First and foremost, according to the Bible, it is a response. Our response to God. John First uh, John 4 says this. It says, we love him because he first loved us. Friends, he acted first, and we are responding to his act of love. That is worship. That's why you'll often hear me pray the words, Lord, help us love you back. And the reason I say, Lord, help us to love you back is because he loved us first. And we're simply responding to that. And that's what worship is. It is responding. It's a response. Secondly, it's our proper response to God. It is the proper response. In Romans 12, when Paul says we ought to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, what he does is he concludes that sentence by saying this, offering our bodies as living sacrifices, is your true and proper worship. Your true and proper worship. In other words, the smartest thing, the wisest thing, the best response that we could possibly give in this life is to worship as a human, out of a sincere heart towards God, to worship him back because we are responding to the love that he gave us. That is our proper response. And that means that we are placing God above everything else everyone else, everything else. It's not enough to simply say that God is worthy. We need to declare him as divinely, supremely worthy above all else. So worshiping God means that we need to place him above hobbies, entertainment, fun, education, boyfriends, girlfriends, wives, husbands, even children. It says that in, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus lists these things out. God desires to have the top spot, the top spot when it comes to our life. Why? Why is that the case? Because he deserves it. He deserves nothing less. And friends, worship, it is not an act like, a, like an event or, or an activity. It's not a feeling. It's so much more than singing. It is a lifestyle of adoration and response where we declare quite appropriately that, God, you are above everything else in my life. That right there, my friends, that is the meaning of worship. That's the meaning. So let's talk about the motives of worship. Why should we worship in the first place? Why should we do it? There are a lot of reasons that we could come up with, but the best two are found in Psalm 95, and here's what they are. We are to worship because of who he is and because of who we are. We'll see that here. Let's look at that. Let's unpack that. The relationship of us to him demands our worship. And this, friends, is a fixed. This is steadfast. This doesn't change. This is the relationship. And so let's start with we worship God because of who he is. That's our first reason. Looking back in Psalm 95, you'll notice the descriptions that the psalmist use for God. In verse 1, he is called the Lord. 
and then he's called the rock of our salvation. In verse 3, God designated him, or he's, he's designated as the, the great God or the great king above all gods. In verse 4 and 5, he's described as the creator of everything on earth. The high places, the deep places, all of them are his. Verse 6, it gets personal. All of a sudden, he is our maker. He is our God. And then in verses 8 through 11, he's described as the God of history. The one who brought Jews out of bondage and, and through the wilderness to give them their own land. All of these are descriptions of who God is. His greatness, his glory, his majesty. And so because of that, we declare his worth above all else. Now, it's not stated in Psalm 95, but we worship further the Son. We worship Jesus Christ because of the work that he has done on the cross. He has brought about right relationship between us and the Father. In fact, worship from now on into eternity will center around this event. It will center around the cross of Christ. Revelation 5 gives us um, kind of a little preview, a little glimpse into heaven uh, where we will sing together, and this is what we will sing. We'll sing, for you were slain, talking about Jesus, talking about the cross. And by your sacrificial death, you ransomed for God people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. Years ago, I heard a story um, about Russia and when the communists were starting to overrun the country and Stalin was in control. And there was a story of a lady in a church, an old woman inside of a church. And there were soldiers that were there and there were, there were congregants that came. But in the middle of the service or near the end, she got up and she walked down the aisle. And at the end of the aisle was the crucifix of Christ. There was a statue and the old woman went up there and she knelt down at his feet and she kissed the feet of our Savior. And in doing so, she got up, a soldier addressed her and said, Babushka, which is the uh, Russian word for grandma. He says, Babushka, are you willing to kiss the feet of Stalin? And without missing a beat, the grandma politely said, yes, if he dies for me. And friends, that's just it. Only Christ was crucified for us. Only he redeemed us. And so he alone gets our worship because of who he is, what he did on the cross, who God is. We worship him because of his supreme worth, because of his supreme value and his love that he showed us on the cross. And so we worship because of who God is. In contrast, we also worship because of who we are. Verse 7 says, for, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Friends, that's the relationship. It's creator and creation. It is Lord and servants. It is the great shepherd and his sheep. We follow him. That's the relationship that determines, that dictates, and I would honestly say even demands our worship. 
It is a natural, natural response. Ownership is implied here. Rulership is implied here. I heard another story about a little boy who made a gingerbread man. And he made the gingerbread man with great care. He, he gave him arms and legs and a head, and when he pulled him out of the oven, he put eyes and frosting and clothes and everything. It just looked great. But the moment that he was done, the gingerbread man surprisingly came to life. And as you would expect, jumped up off the, plant, the, the, the uh, plate and ran out of the kitchen. Didn't say a word, just ran out of the kitchen. And so the little boy was shocked, and he ran right after the gingerbread man. And he went down the street, and he went into the, around the corner, and all of a sudden he was lost, and the boy could not find the gingerbread man. So he searched for three days. He looked and he looked and he looked to find his creation that, that he was so proud of. Finally, he's discouraged, and he's on his way home, and he's walking by the street, and he passes the bakery. And in the window was his gingerbread man. He was so excited that he went inside the store. He went right up to the manager and he said, I found him. That's my gingerbread man. I made him. Can I take him home? And the owner said, I am sorry. Boy, he is in my shop. If you want him, it'll cost you five cents. And the boy was disheartened. It's like, but I made him. He's mine. I created him. I deserve to take him home. And he says, hey, he's in my shop. If you want him, it'll cost you a nickel. And so the boy reached into his pocket he grabbed a nickel out, and he handed it to the store owner, and he brought the gingerbread man home. When he got home, he put the gingerbread man on the counter, and he smashed his leg so the gingerbread man would never run away again. No, I'm just kidding. That's not the answer. Here's what he did. He sat him on the counter, and he said, gingerbread man, you are mine. I made you, and not only did I make you, I, I, I bought you as well. And that is the truth. Does that not parallel to Jesus and what he's done for us? He is our creator. He has made us. And like sheep, we have all gone astray. We've run down the street. We've run around the corner. And we've even hidden from God at times. And yet he's come and he bought us back. He bought us with the ultimate price of the cross. Only Jesus can rightfully say, I have made you. I have redeemed you, and you are mine. Jesus can say that. And friends, it's because of that relationship, of who he is and who we are, that it, that it demands us to live a lifestyle of adoration and worship to him. Did you notice in verse number seven that we were called sheep, that we are the sheep of his hand? Now, depending on your understanding of sheep, you're either greatly offended or you're, you're encouraged or you're comforted. Because sheep, although cuddly and soft and can occasionally be used to help fall asleep with, um, they aren't that smart at all. They're not smart in the slightest. In fact, they're not impressive. They are nature's victim, right? Sheep have been known to die of dehydration three feet from water. They, they don't bite hard. They don't run fast. They must be led. But here's the truth. I am not insulted in the slightest to be called a sheep if I have the great shepherd as my shepherd. In fact, I am elated. As David said, 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David was a shepherd himself, and he knew that the quality of life for a sheep is determined by their shepherd. And so so David's kind of like bragging here. He's kind of like the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. That guy, yeah, I'm with him. He, He takes care of me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And so what's David's response? It's worship. It's worship. And so to sum up this section, he is the creator. We are the creation. What is the natural response? It's worship. He is the Lord, and we are the subjects. What's our natural response? It's worship. He is the great shepherd. We are the sheep. Our natural response should be worship. Friends, that is our motive. That is the motive for us to worship because of who he is in contrast to who we are. And so let's talk about, lastly, the modes of worship. How should this be accomplished? How do we go about worshiping God? In reality, there are many ways that we can worship. And we're going to spend the bulk of the summer kind of unpacking different ways in which we can worship him. But as for today, what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about four ways that are highlighted in Psalm 95. Here's the first one. We worship God with our lips. We worship him with our lips. Verse 1 says, let us sing. Let us shout joyfully. Aren't you grateful that it doesn't say, let us sing perfectly to the Lord. Let us sing on pitch and let us sing in harmony. No, the psalmist says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. We can do that. We can all do that. Even my mentor, Dave Kelly, he can make a joyful noise. He can make a noise. It may not be joyful to listen to, but he can do that. And friends, we're going to talk about this in detail a little bit later, but God has a thing for singing. Whether you can sing or not, he has a thing for singing. Have you ever noticed how a little baby, like a toddler, moves to music naturally? You play a beat, they start to dance, they start to move around. Why is that? Because it's inside of them. It's written in their DNA. We are made in God's image. And because of that, he loves worship. He loves music. He loves it when kids sing to him. Friends, the Bible references singing, lifting our voice, praising to God. Catch this, 400 times. Over 400 times. 50 of those times are a direct command for us to sing. In fact, one of the longest books in the Bible is the book of Psalms, which is a book and a collection of songs. This, singing with our lips, is a big deal. So whether you are Adele or you are Dave, let us sing. Let us shout joyfully. Let us worship with our lips. That's the first thing. The second mode in which we worship is with our bodies. Verse 6, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. The Bible gives us several ways in which we are to glorify God in this manner. Bowing down before the Lord, standing in his presence, lifting our hands, 1 Timothy 2.8, 
kneeling before the Lord, dancing before the Lord, even falling before the Lord, which is typically what happens when I try to dance. But our bodies were designed, crafted, they were calibrated to worship, to worship him, to worship our creator. So it's not just with our lips. It's also with our bodies and how we move. Third way we can talk about in, 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 in uh, um, Psalm 80, uh, 95, it says this, with our peers. I want you to notice the, the plural pronouns throughout. Let us worship. Let us sing. Let us shout. The context for the 95th Psalm is actually a call to public worship. It is a call to corporate worship. There's so many people that I've heard say, well, you know, I just want to go out in the woods, and I just want to be out with nature, and just be me and a rock, and and maybe a couple trees, and I'm just going to sing praises there. You can, and I love that too. I love going on walks and being in God's creation. But friends, there is something about worshiping with one another, with our peers, with the body of Christ. The first time I recognized this was when I went to the kingdom. It was a long time ago. And they were doing promise keepers. And I sat and, I, and, then, I, and then we all stood and we sang hymns. The entire stadium sang hymns to God. And I remember being so encouraged by, oh my goodness, this is like a glimpse of what heaven could possibly be where we were all singing to him. Corporate worship shouldn't be about competition or comparison with who's worshiping and who's not. It should be encouraging. We should be like, look around. I'm with them and they're with me and I'm one of them and we're together in this and we're worshiping the same God and they love Jesus like I love Jesus. That's so great. That is why it is perfectly appropriate when we get to come back to church that you can worship and keep your eyes open. In fact, I'd encourage you to look around. You could close them if you want, but to tune everybody out, man, nah, it's supposed to be an encouragement that I'm with them, they're with me, and you inspire me and I inspire you as we worship God together. Remember, Jesus taught us to say, Our Father. When he didn't instruct us to pray, My Father who art in heaven. He said, Our Father. Jesus came to take words like I, mean, and I, me, and mine in our vocabulary and change it to we, ours, and us. We are all part of a great peer group in the body of Christ. And so we worship together. We worship with our lips, we worship with our bodies, and we worship together as peers. Lastly, and I'll conclude with this, we worship with our lives. Verses 7 through 10 go on to tell us of how the nation of Israel did not live out their faith in everyday lives in the 95th Psalm. That they would worship him on a Sunday, if you will, but in their normal lives they turned from him. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that whatever we do, we are to do it all for the glory of God. Our entire lives are to be an act of worship. Everything that we do is an opportunity to glorify 
God. A guy named George Smith said this. He says, there are really five Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And fifth, the Christian. Unfortunately, most people will never read the first four. And friends, that's true. And so that's why this summer what I want to do is I want to offer you an invitation. The same invitation that the psalmist gave out in Psalm 95. That we would lift our eyes. We would lift our eyes off of this current circumstance. Not ignore it, but not focus on it. Let us focus on the mountain. Let us focus on the one who deserves our worship. Let us focus on God himself. And friends, when we do that, when we worship first, as a friend of mine used to say, I think you will be surprised, pleasantly surprised. We'll be reminded of who God is and how big and how vast and how amazing he is and our dependence upon him. And what will happen is that our big problems will start to shrink when we realize that the God of the universe has them in his hands in light of his glory and his grace. And we'll talk more about what does it mean to worship and how can we do it and, and reminding ourselves of who we're worshiping throughout this summer. But today, would you simply receive this invitation that we would take this opportunity this summer to accept this invitation to worship that we're invited to worship him, challenged to worship him, not just with our lips, but with our bodies and with, our, with each other and with our entirety of our lives. That would be my hope. And when we do that, he will be glorified. That's the best part. When we worship him, he is glorified. And what happens when it says that we will lift him up? It says all men will be drawn unto him. And that's what we want. We want our brothers and our sisters and our friends and all the people that we know to experience the same love and grace that we have felt and we have known through Jesus our Savior. And so friends, let's worship him this summer. Let's worship him this summer. Let's really worship the one who deserves, divinely deserves our worship. For now, let's pray.